her son. But thank the Lord for this. Salvation is free to us. And you'll notice here that this invitation is for those that have no money. And here, money does not represent dollars and cents, but it's the inability that we have to offer anything to God. We have nothing to give God. And we all come to him spiritually bankrupt. And if we ever attempt to bring anything to God, God will refuse us. Then there's another invitation, and again, you're quite familiar with this one. It's in the New Testament, and this is an invitation for those who do have something, for them to bring something to God, and I think that you'll recognize it right away. We read it this morning in the message from the book of Matthew, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so here are verses where God does tell us to bring something. We bring our burdens, we bring our sins, we bring the weight of all of our terrible imperfections, and we give all of that to Jesus. And he says that he will relieve those burdens and give rest to our weary souls. So the Bible invites us to do this. And it tells us that all who come to him will be received. And it gives us incentives to respond to the invitation. And of course, salvation is our main incentive. But we're going to talk a little bit more about some other things in, our ne- in these next few messages. Now, we notice in the verses that we've read that there are different voices that we see here. We have an angel that speaks in these few verses. The Apostle John speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then also the Lord Jesus Christ speaks. And if you have a red-letter Bible, your, your attention is drawn to these letters in red that are in this sea of black. And Jesus says, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Now there we have another reminder of the theme of the last part of Revelation. Now if you remember, as we were studying this, uh, back up in verse number 5 of chapter 22, that is actually the end of the Revelation. The vision of the tribulation has already been given. Those frightening images have already been told to us. Uh, The scenes of activities in heaven are done. The end of Satan has taken place. Judgment of lost sinners has already been explained. The description of the new Jerusalem is given to us. And now we have a restatement of the theme of this epilogue of Scripture. And this is the promise, once again, that Jesus is coming. And we don't want to miss that message because it's a message that has profound implications both to those that are saved and to those that are lost. Verses 6 through 12 are a message or is a message to God's people. And then we come to the next verses and God has something to say to those that are lost. Now remember, as we talked about this before, Jesus says, I come quickly. And that doesn't mean that we can set a date for his coming. It does not mean that the timing of his coming is actually immediate. It is imminent. But we know that since this was written 2,000 years ago that John did not intend to say that it was immediate. There's a difference between immediacy and imminency. And so although we can't claim that Christ's coming is immediate, we certainly do claim that Christ can come at any time and it could be before tonight's over. And if it is, then we'll say, as John says in verse number 20, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Now, as much as, of course, as I like to study the Bible, as much as I love to preach sermons, I I wouldn't mind at all missing Wednesday night because Jesus came and we're at home to be with him. 
So the Savior says, all of you say, amen, you don't want to hear me preach either on Wednesday night. I could tell that. But the Savior says he comes quickly, and that means that when he comes, it happens suddenly, that preparations have to be made in advance because there is no time for them later. He's not going to make any, any announcements beforehand that he's coming. And so when he comes, the tribulation begins, and those that remain upon earth uh, after the rapture will be able to set a fairly close date for the biggest event of the second coming, and that is when Christ comes in his kingdom. First, there are seven years of tribulation that occurs immediately after the rapture. Then when Christ uh, comes again after the rapture, he comes with his kingdom. And so 1,000 years uh, will be Christ's kingdom upon the earth and the scenes of chapter 20 and the new Jerusalem of chapter 21 then will become real. Now, I was speaking to uh, Victor just a couple of three weeks ago and he was telling me about someone who was preparing for the end of the world according to the Mayan calendar. I think the Mayan calendar says that that, uh, the world is going to end this year. And uh, Victor told him, rightly of course, that the end of the world will not happen this year. I mean, that's for sure. No matter if you believe Christ is coming or not, the end of the world cannot happen this year because the nearest it could possibly be is 1,007 years. So don't, no, don't take me wrong about that. I'm not saying it's going to be 1,000 years until Christ comes again. It could be 1,000 seconds before he comes again. It could be 1,007 millennia before he comes again. I don't know about that. But I do know that the world is not going to end until you have those seven years of tribulation. And then you have the 1,000 years of Christ's reign upon the earth. So we have this restatement here of the theme of the epilogue that Jesus is coming and each of us needs to concern ourselves with that fact. Now we're going to take some time to understand why there has to be appropriate response to this saying of Jesus, behold, I come quickly. And we're going to talk about tonight, our subject tonight is the reward of his coming. Verse 12 says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Now, we need to be ready for the coming of Christ because Scripture says he comes with a reward. Now, I want to divide that statement into two different categories, although I do believe most certainly that the main intent here is to talk about those who are believers in Christ, that there are rewards that Christ will bring for believers But I also think there's a sense in which we can apply this to unbelievers. Both groups are going to receive a reward when Christ comes again. Now, first we'll consider the believers, the works of believers. And that's what it's talking about here. What earns the reward is the works of believers. You see, the preparation for the life that comes afterward takes place now. Now, Christians often forget that. Uh, The purpose of our lives gets muddled up with all the other activities that we have to do. We think things are more important, and and, uh, we forget that we have been saved not only for eternity, but we've also been saved with a purpose in mind for this life. Now, we're quick to turn to passages such as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where Paul says that we are saved by grace and not by works. And we always emphasize that part, not of works. And we ought to do that. We, we never want to give the impression that salvation is by anything that we do. And so we're right to emphasize that. 
And if you examine every religious system in the world, they believe that the underlying cause of salvation, and it's this way in all those systems, that good works are what is the cause of salvation. It's whatever you attempt to do for God that will help you to get to heaven. And that is not any more clearly seen than in the false Christianity of Roman Catholicism, which is a works salvation through and through. Now, Roman Catholics have even gone so far as to invent the doctrine of purgatory because they do not believe that the work of Christ on the cross was fully sufficient to save us from our sins. Instead, they believe that uh, the believer has to do something in the afterlife to pay off a part of the sin debt that he didn't take care of while he was in this life. Brother Max Arlen gave me a paper just a, a few weeks ago and uh, it was a something put out by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it was, I think the title of it may have been Common Questions That Are Asked of Roman Catholics, Answers to These Questions. And I want to quote from that. These are not my words, but I read from them. The question was asked, why do Catholics believe in purgatory? And here's the answer to the question. When we die in God's friendship, we eventually go to heaven. But if we haven't properly atoned for certain sins, we have to be purified in purgatory first. We pray for the souls in purgatory to help them pass through faster than they would otherwise. And to that last statement, I would also add, we collect money for the privilege of a priest praying for them so they can get out a lot faster too. And so you can see from that that Roman Catholicism does not teach that the atonement of Christ or the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for our sins, that you have a part of that. You have to work off something. And, and so uh, the Roman Catholics believe that your works are as valuable in that system, your works are as valuable as the blood of Jesus Christ and might even be more valuable because without them you're never going to go to heaven. So we, we want to avoid that egregious error. And that is such a serious error that souls are damned that believe in such things. So we emphasize the knot of works in Ephesians 2 verse 9, but there's little emphasis that put, that's put on verse number 10. And there Paul writes, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now I suppose I've heard a thousand different messages on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And verses 8 through 9 are preached and preached and preached. And although verse number 10 is read, there's usually not much emphasis that's placed on verse number 10. And there it says that God has ordained us to walk in his works. Verse number 10 is also important because there we find the purpose of Christ saving us and leaving us to live this life on earth. Now there in verse number 10... Uh, if we didn't have that, every person that is saved would be taken immediately into heaven because there would be no need to leave us here. And if we didn't have verse number 10, we'd be left twiddling our uh, thumbs all of the time until we die, until Jesus comes again. But we have been recreated in Christ Jesus, according to Scripture, for good works. God has given us the ability to do good works now that we're saved, and he has ordained us for that purpose. So uh, we lose sight of that purpose, though. And that's why we have so much trouble getting Christians to attend church regularly. That's why there's an excuse of nearly every kind for more important things to do than coming here to learn about Christ or to be a witness wherever we are. And that is because we have substituted all of our purposes for Christ's singular purpose. 
So why should we live according to God's purpose? Well, we have the answer to that question right here in our text tonight. We live for him because he's coming back with his reward. He says he will give every man according as his work shall be. And so that means that God is keeping a record of all of our good works. Now, sometimes we concern ourselves with the the hope and the comfort that God is no longer keeping track of our sins. If you are saved, a blood-bought believer, God's no longer keeping a record of your sins, but God is still keeping a record. And the record that he keeps is of the good works that you do. God keeps a record of how you've carried out his commandments, how you have been grateful to him, how you served him faithfully, how you walk in holiness, how you perform all the duties of Christian service. Well, there's one subject that we haven't spent a lot of time on while we're studying in Revelation. Uh, I preached several messages on the great white throne judgment that we find in verse number 20, and that is the judgment of lost sinners. It's at the great white throne, which is the, that's the time for God to recall all the sins of lost people. He brings that record to bear, and he determines the severity of the punishment of those who have not believed in Christ, rejected Christ, and there they receive the, uh, the amount or the severity of their punishment in hell. Now, we studied, though, at the beginning of chapter 20, for just a little bit, the judgment of saved people. And there will be a judgment for the saved as well. It's not the same. It's not the same in its subjects. It's not the same in the results as the great white throne. But nevertheless, the scripture teaches that there is a judgment for us as well. Revelation does not refer to that judgment directly, but it does indirectly in passages like we have tonight. So this judgment that I'm speaking of here is the judgment seat of Christ. And that's also called the Bema Seat Judgment. And we read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5 for just a moment here so we can read this together. And while you're looking for that passage, let me just say a little bit about the timing of judgment. The great white throne judgment takes place after the millennial reign. That's the last dealings that God has with lost people. And when the last ones are killed in chapter 20, uh, at the end of the millennial reign, then the lost are brought up for judgment. They're resurrected for judgment. And that is all those that never believed in the true God, all of those from all time, all unbelievers will be resurrected and their bodies will be rejoined with their spirits and they'll be fitted for eternal punishment. Then they'll be judged and then thrown into the lake of fire. But the judgment of Christians occurs much earlier than that. I believe that it occurs before the millennial reign. In other words, there'll be 1,000 years that separates the judgment of saved people from the judgment of the lost. And I think that's clear from reading the beginning of Revelation chapter 20. So if you found here 2 Corinthians 5, I want to start here at the beginning of the chapter where Paul says, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now the earthly tabernacle that Paul is speaking of there is our body. And you should know a tabernacle is a tent. A tent is a temporary structure. It's not a permanent dwelling. And so when our body dies, this body goes into the grave, then our spirits go into heaven. And then when we get to heaven, at later on there will be a permanent dwelling there for us. That's called our new house. And it's not like the present body that we have now. 
Verse number 2 says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Now understand there that he's still talking about the body. He's speaking about a glorified body. And this is not a place for him to talk about mansions that we'll have in heaven. Verse 3 says, if so, that if, uh, if so be, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle, that is in this body, do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon or wishing for that new eternal body, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who has also given us the earnest of the Spirit. And we don't want to overlook verse number 5 here, because that's the guarantee that these promises that God has made will come true. So God has given us the Holy Spirit as a token of his good faith, that he will resurrect our bodies, he will glorify them, and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us is that guarantee. The scripture shows us that it's a, a guarantee or it's earnest money, it's a down payment, we might say, that the final transaction will take place. He goes on in verse 6 and he says, Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And there is a verse that casts purgatory on the dunghill of all false doctrines because the scripture says when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. We're not in purgatory trying to sweat off some sins to make our own atonement to God. He goes on and he says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. And here we find a command for righteous works of believers. And Paul's going somewhere with this. He talks about suffering in 2 Corinthians and persecution. And the reason that we stay faithful to the work that God has called us to do is because of the next verse, verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So he says we all must appear. He's talking about saved people. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat is a translation of the Greek word bema. And so that's why we call it the bema judgment. But the judgment... Uh, The judgment seat of Christ is for the purpose of God giving Christians their rewards for faithful service. And so this is when your entire life as a Christian is laid open before God for examination. Now that's not a time for the discussion of sin because the judgment for our sins has already taken place at the cross. The sins of every Christian were judged on the cross of Christ. And that's when Christ himself took the undiluted wrath of God. And there on the cross he suffered our hell for us. And because Christ suffered the punishment of hell for us, we are not going to be judged for our sins. And so when we appear before this judgment seat, God's not going to talk about our sin. He's going to talk about our works. He's going to to talk about how we have responded to his commandments. And again, how we've shown ingratitude that we thank him for our salvation and that we've lived our lives pleasing to him because of what he's done for us. And so this is when all of our works are going to be tried and it will be determined what kind of works they are. 
If you'll flip back a few pages to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, or rather 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul tells us that God is going to, how he's going to deal with these different works to determine what sort they are. So he says in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, starting at verse 11, <clears throat> For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." Well, there Paul compares the works of a, the good works of a Christian, the works that have lasting eternal value. He compares those to gold, silver, and precious stones. And that's referring to the quality of our works and the motivation for our works. And if those works are of the right kind, then they'll stand the scrutiny of God's judgment, just like the purity of gold is tried in a fire. But if those works have been done for the wrong motive, and their works that are frivolous things and things of poor quality, they'll be burned up. They have no eternal value, and so God casts them aside. Well, they're going to be burned up. Works are going to be burned up. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Because here it's obvious to us that Paul is not referring to a literal fire. And he's not talking about Christians being in a fire in order to purge them from their works. And that's because he's not talking about evil works. Evil works are sin. God's not going to judge us for the believer for our sins. So he's talking here about works that really don't measure up to the eternal standard. And if you think about that for a moment, you know that Paul can't be talking about a literal fire in this particular place because the object of what he's speaking of here is works. And you can't burn up things that don't have any material substance. Works are not a body. And they're not hay or stubble. That's just a comparison. So the fire here refers to the review of God, to the scrutiny of God over those works. And, and again, we would say they certainly don't refer to a Christian's body that's going to be tortured in purgatory. You know, that's, that is a terrible doctrine. That is a hopeless doctrine. Is there anybody that would want Jesus to come back soon if you thought that you're going to end up in some place worse than you are right now? that you would be, end up in a fire to be purged? Well, that's a hopeless doctrine. I, I don't want to believe in something like that. I believe it like the Scripture says. And so returning then to this thought of works being burned up, there are a lot of things that we can do that aren't sin, but neither will they bring us an eternal reward. Let me give you an example of that. Last month we had the Lego Derby, and we had... Uh, all of the kids here, and uh, they made their Lego cars, and some of the adults made cars too. And that was a, a fun activity for kids and adults. But there's a difference between the good stuff and the quality stuff that receives an eternal reward and other things that will be thrown away. And I can use Eric as an example of this. Eric is going to receive an eternal reward because he cared enough about our kids to give them a, a Christian environment to make a good activity for them. He's going to receive an eternal reward for the time that he took to do that, the talents that he used to get it all organized, to set up a track and make that a good day for the church. 
And so he showed his love and his concern for for the kids in our church, and that's faithful service to the Lord. That brings a reward. But sad to say for Eric that even though he had the fastest car in the adult division and he got to wear the tie on Sunday morning, that tie is all he's going to get for winning the race. I mean, he's not going to get to heaven and have an eternal tie to wear around to show that he won the race. So Now, he may like to do that, and I'm sure that he was proud of that and all of that, but that part of the activity is the trivial part. That was for Eric's selfish, pharisaical desire. Uh, that, that was to prove that he's better than everybody else. At least that's what Brian told me that was the reason. But returning here to this text in Revelation, you see the fact that Christ is returning with a reward is not, not only the fact that we will receive the reward, but it's also great encouragement for godly living. That's the incentive that God gives us to live for him. And you have some people who say, well, don't, don't talk about the rewards because uh, we don't serve God for rewards. I don't have any problem with that. Because God's the one who said this. God's the one who gave the incentive. And the people that receive the reward are not those that receive it for selfish purposes anyway. They receive a reward because they did something that was pleasing to the Lord. And that's the ultimate reason that we do all of these things. We want to be pleasing to him. And when we do things that are pleasing to him, that's what brings the eternal reward. That's the gold and silver and the precious stones. And then when all of those awards are, rewards are accumulated, then it determines the extent of our happiness in heaven. And I think that everybody's going to be happy in heaven, but some will have a greater capacity to be happy in heaven, and that's according to the way that they serve God in this life. Now, other people in heaven are not going to be envious of those who have more uh, because we're not talking about here about sin. Envy is a sin. You don't have any sin in heaven. But those who serve God most faithfully have a greater capacity to enjoy heaven than others. So what should you do? You should live righteously live godly because the more faithful you are to god the more that you will enjoy heaven and since heaven is forever what does that tell us well it tells us that the works that we do for god in this life are of incalculable value well let me finish the next point that we have here and we'll do this rather quickly Uh, verse number 12 i said is primarily about christians that christ is returning with a reward And that concerns works of believers. But we also have an application here for unbelievers. There's also a reward for them. But this we would call the woes for unbelievers. Because the reward that Christ has for them is not good. It's as sure promise as the first one is. As sure as believers will receive their reward. There is also a promised reward for those that are lost and that reward is eternal punishment in the fires of hell all Christ rejectors will receive the reward of the fires of hell now you'll notice in the 20th chapter of Revelation verse number 12 it says and I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works So works are also involved here. The judgment of unbelievers is according to their works, and their works are evil. Scripture says that there is none righteous. So there is nothing that an unbeliever does but sin, 
And even though there are good things that we think that people do, those good things carry no weight with God. And that's because all good things have to be done for the glory of God. And that's the very same reason that the frivolous works of believers are discarded, because they weren't done for the glory of God. So the unbeliever actually has nothing that counts positively for him. And God doesn't lessen his punishment in hell because of some good work that he does. But rather God is concerned about his sins and he is judged for those sins and that's what determines the degree of punishment in hell. So what do unbelievers need to do? They need to pay attention that Christ is coming back as well and what they need to do is to come out of their unbelief and trust Christ. And so they need to heed this invitation because when Christ comes, his, their doom is sealed. Hell is forever just like heaven is forever. And so what... A person does now, a lost person does now, also counts forever. So we learn here that Jesus is coming with a reward. And the important thing for all of us to remember or to think about is what kind of reward it will be for each of us. Now as Christians, are we going to have things that will burn up or have we done works for God where God gives us these long-lasting eternal rewards And then also importantly, if you don't know Christ as Savior, be aware that there is a reward for you and you need to be thinking about the coming of Christ even as much as a saved person thinks about the coming of Christ. Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. We don't know what it is, but he is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and Lord, we we are so much expecting Jesus to come back. We look for it and we pray for it and we do want him to come. And we know that the timing will be your timing. But as we look for that, I, I do pray that each of us would be faithful in all that we do, that we would trust you as we should, that every day would be spent thinking about you and and just centering our lives around your word and what we can do for you. That That is the purpose of our lives. And Lord, we also pray for those that are lost. Uh, when you come, as we've stated tonight, there there's no warning about it. Uh, all the preparations have to be made in advance. And the preparation that needs to be made is to have faith in Jesus Christ. We don't want an eternal reward to be punishment in hell. Lord, speak to us tonight. We thank you for all of your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you live for Jesus'